my name is Lauren and welcome to Major Motion Pictures, a DMC podcast dedicated to asking better questions than what is your favorite movie. Today I am joined yet again by one of my co-workers, Eddie Carpio Bran. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs> well, uh, so the icebreaker question that I like to ask all of my co-workers and other guests who come onto the podcast is what got you into video production? Because I know that you have done quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Um... So I've always just kind of had like this this weird passion for film, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, I, I think we, we were talking about this the other day or actually the first movie I ever watched was uh, Back to the Future. And so that it, like comprehending it and everything just as a little kid, it absolutely floored me. I was like, oh, my God, this is so crazy, dude. Nice. They, they took a car back in time. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I've always had this thing of like, I want to create an experience for people. And when when I was a kid, I would watch uh, YouTube videos and then uh, about people in, doing these skits and sketches and stuff like, uh, like Niga Higa or like mm-hmm. Smosh or, you know, and they're, they're just, I feel like some part of me wanted to become famous, <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, it was just, I wanted to make something, you know? Yeah. I mean, so like growing up around the, the sort of the digital age of YouTube, I think that accessibility is really key in getting a lot of people our age interested in video production, even if it is just making sort of like sketches or videos uh, for online. Absolutely. Yeah. B- because like, like YouTube becoming, uh, having the whole broadcast yourself as, um, as it's like tagline was just perfect that like that was perfect marketing everybody just jumped on board because they're like oh my god people are actually getting famous from this we need to we need to jump on this and then like you have things like vine which came out and that was revolutionary because people only had six seconds to do these things Mm -hmm. and but they became a lot more creative with their limitations and like it, it seems like people embrace the limitations and they kind of manipulate things that go around it to to make up for the things that they've lost and in that case, it would be like timing. So I don't know. I, I remember watching Vine compilations and then some of these people are just freaking ingenious and creative. And with TikTok and everything, it made that process a little bit more automated. Mm-hmm. It's kind of bittersweet because in my personal opinion, all that sort of thing is like the internet kind of gets oversaturated with a lot of, a lot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so it, it's hard for people to get discovered because there's so many people trying to get discovered. But it's amazing to watch all the projects that people do just independently. Do you have any memory of sort of like the first video or the first project that you made? Uh, the first project I ever made. <laughs> have you ever heard of a Pivot Animation? I don't think so. So, so, uh, it's like a, it's a tiny box and it gives you a handful of like, uh, sticks, like segments with points on the end of it. Mm -hmm. And then it gives you like shapes and, um, like a stick figure. And so it teaches, it taught me about stop motion animation. And like, I just thought it was, it was perfect because I would see all these stick figure videos on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I wanted, I was like, I can do that. I need to learn how to do that. And then. There was like this, uh, you would be able to manipulate like the joints and make them move a little bit. Like if I wanted to make him wave, then I would just grab his hand and move it side to side. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get it. You're, you're, I'm actually, I'm preaching to the choir because you're like an animation god. I am not. That is not true. So. <laughs> <laughs> you are, yes, you are incredibly modest. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. No, I promise you, you are incredibly talented in that arena, and you're like the first person that I would call if anything, if I wanted to do anything with animation. I show people the little Ant-Man video that we did all the time. I'm like, dude, check out what we can do here. You gotta like check us out, you know? Mm-hmm. But anyways, I'm sorry, I'm getting on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what were we talking about? The what? What was? <laughs> yeah, sort of like first projects that maybe you were doing when you were younger, and then um, like that introduction sort of video production. Because we both work in the digital media center, um, so we have prior experience to sort of what we do now as video production assistants for the school. Right, right. Well, 
I, I guess outside of that animation thing, I, I guess I could say in high school, I took a film class, like video communications, and then we were given like DSLRs and like a handful of challenges to do. And I'll be honest with you that the class felt more like a game show rather than actually like feeling like a class, you know, because everybody passed all the time as long as they had some effort put into the videos. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people took it for an easy A thing. And I was I was that jerk in class who was taking the assignments too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but it's like like I just really wanted to make something awesome you know and just make something that's genuinely good and actually like cool I, I didn't want to make like a shit post mm -hmm. for you know an assignment where it's like hey recreate this commercial and I'm like I want to do that exactly you know <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah it started out with music videos and commercials and uh originally I wanted to be an actor but uh, eventually I really gravitated towards video editing because that's like at this point it's my bread and butter but my only problem is is that like I'm not creative enough to film the stuff myself. I just want <laughs> footage to be given to me. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so both of us work for the Digital Media Center. We're also both heavily involved with the Murder Mystery Project that's in production. Yes. Uh, you're actually the director for uh, the project, and I'm producing it. <laughs> and that has been a ton of fun working with you on this. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, for listeners of the podcast who might not know, um, this uh, Murder Mystery is supposed to come out uh, end of fall maybe in winter um without giving away too many spoilers how has sort of this experience been going for you honestly i it, it has been a blast <laughs> like it's it is scratching my extrovert itch you know <laughs> it, like it, it is especially after quarantine um it's it's really amazing to just be involved in a project with people and like i i guess i could compare this to those high school courses where i was that jerk because like <laughs> People are genuinely listening to me and like they ha want to hear what I have to say. And then I, I think uh, one of our main actors, um, uh, it's all right if I say his name, right? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so um, one of our actors, uh, his name is Ian and he told me like, Hey, I really love your directing style and it's incredibly hands-on. And like, I was pretty touched cause I was like, that's, that's like, I would say that that is like the highest honor in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So what an amazing thing to just feel in that moment because like I'm genuinely doing a good job at something that I love to do. And everybody is so professional, so on board and Absolutely. I have been so pleasantly surprised with how d dedicated or just into it the actors have been. Um, that like everyone is totally on the same page in right. making this project as good as possible, even though it's a, the equivalent of a student film, even though it's going to be a series. And oh my god, yes, you're you're absolutely right because I I, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they're on our casting crew. And uh, they were like, yeah, I was reading through the script. And I was, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happens. And it just <laughs> made me so excited for for like dude, these people are getting excited about something that we wrote. Isn't that crazy? Oh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> it is awesome. People are genuinely excited about this thing. And I feel like usually I'm really hard on myself when it comes to projects that I'm making. But there, there are so many people putting in their own perspectives and input into this thing that it's like, like, it's so much bigger than just myself. And I'm so proud of the project, no matter what. Yes, yes. I'm just, I'm excited for when we start to film some of the bigger stunts that are coming up. Yes. As we get uh, permission to move outside the DMC. Hopefully the library will let us film. Uh, yet to be seen. Yeah. Um, not to give any spoilers out or anything, you know. Um, but doing what little choreography that I've done uh, so far has made me incredibly excited about what is to come. Mm -hmm. And and that's the that's the best way that I can put it. <laughs> Very well put. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, speaking sort of of direction and sort of working on projects and these types of things, I think we can get into our big question for the rest of the episode, uh, which is, who are your some of, let me rephrase that, uh, who are some of your favorite directors? Oh man, that's a, yeah, you, you hear me talk about Edgar Wright all the time. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and so, um. Well, yeah, Edgar Wright is my, my favorite director. 
And um, I'm going to sound basic when I say this, but, you know, Baby Driver is an absolute masterpiece. It's just unavoidable. That is true. Like, apparently, <laughs> apparently, it is everybody and their mother's favorite movie right now. So I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> guess we got to pick another one then. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I can't deny that, like, a lot of their stunts being practical, there, there, was, there was such a delicate hand. Everything was so deliberately chosen. And, and like, you can see what watching the Cornetto trilogy and Scott Pilgrim that he really evolves as a director. Because starting with Shaun of the Dead, you'll see that it's really low budget, but it's absolutely witty and so clever. And they even do a little thing with Don't Stop Me Now uh, in the bar fight scene at the very end. And um, I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but this movie's <laughs> been out for like 18 years probably at this point. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it yet. But... What? <laughs> Lord, no. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to watch uh, PG-13 and R-rated movies till I was like 15. So I have yeah, a lot of I, catching up to do. I was like six years old watching The Schindler's List. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> also on my list. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, anyways, I digress. At the very end, they do that whole, like, time-synchronizing thing with uh, Queen's Don't Stop Me Now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, going back and watching that movie, I'm like, huh, okay, so he's had the idea for this for a really long time. And uh, he even put out a music video in which the opening sequence of Baby Driver was inspired. Mm -hmm. I, I forget what the what the band was called, and I forget what the... I forget all the details about it, but it was something about being blue. Hmm. You know, I, I could probably like put a link somewhere in there or whatever, but yeah, we can put a link in the, the, the description or the show notes of this episode. Oh, that's, that sounds amazing. That would be terrific. But yeah, there's a, a music video that was, that inspired that whole thing that he directed. Then uh, you watch hot fuzz and it's like, like, first off, every single movie that he's ever made is completely different because mm -hmm. you got a zombie movie, you got a video game, comic book, adaptation you got a buddy cop film a coming of age story with the world's end you know you got a, a heist movie with baby driver mm -hmm. and uh i could be forgetting some but he's working on a mockumentary and a horror movie right now doesn't he have a movie coming out like in a couple months he has two. Oh, okay and one of them's going to be a horror film the other one's going to be a, a mockumentary about a fake band oh, okay I, I think it'll be in like the similar vein as like spinal tap mm -hmm. <laughs> should i continue to talk about edgar wright or should we move on to another director <laughs> i mean you can if you want the whole conversation can be totally tailored to what you want to talk about here uh if you want to keep going on I will say I've only seen Scott Pilgrim and Baby Driver. I think those are the two Edgar Wright films that I've seen. Gotcha. Well, okay, then maybe I, uh, I'll just talk about like the like the tactical elements of of Baby Driver. Like, it, honestly, it was crazy to me to figure out that each character has their own um, color, as well as a different uh, like moniker or nickname that really described their whole personality. Mm -hmm. As well as like the visual red herring of Bats like not being the main antagonist and secretly Buddy. Right. It is like nuts, especially when he's in the cop car and he sees Red and he looks like a fucking bull. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like like all these visual motifs and everything. You have um you have Deborah, who's always wearing yellow and mm -hmm. uh, black and white, which is baby's color. But eventually it, it starts turning gray because it starts turning gray as he goes deeper into the criminal underworld. Oh. You also have Doc, who is like in very, very, very dark green. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost ambiguous whether he's in black and white or complete black or just green. And you, when you see it up close, you notice that it's a green suit. Interesting. Also, by the way, with Kevin Spacey, I'm really disappointed, you know. Like that's yeah. a terrific film, and I'm glad that the movie didn't um, be get affected because of it. Because like sometimes you need to separate the art from the artist, especially in that way. Because there were way too many people to contribute to that, just for it to be completely canned or blamed or whatever. Right, he's in a lot of great movies. Yes, I don't. I don't think he he sort of the retro. Well, because that one is more of kind of the the news was coming out contemporarily with the right uh the film but there's a sort of the sense of like looking back on something like seven or um what's the the usual suspects yes and sort of like oh these are really really good movies but it's really hard to separate art from artists when you sort of know stuff that's going on behind the scenes absolutely and it, it's like 
it's horrific because there's there's a, definitely a fine line that needs to be drawn because it's such a slippery slope. But I, I just feel like, man, like nobody went to go watch Billionaire Boys Club. And there was there were too many people on that movie. Like that was a star-studded cast. You had Emma Roberts, Ansel Elgort, and Taron Egerton or Egerton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It, it was like in protest to Kevin Spacey, and um, I get it, but those are all phenomenal actors who just the movie didn't uh, get justice. Granted, to be honest, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, <laughs> but it's only because only because uh, it hasn't been on any of the streaming services, and frankly. It honestly doesn't even seem that good in the first place. <laughs> However, I just think that the performances and, and just the hard work that goes into making a movie, I know what it's like to make one, and I know what it's like to make one that's really, really low budget. Mm-hmm. To have one that's like millions of dollars, I, it's just it's unfathomable that one person can just ruin that. Yeah, and so part of what you're saying sort of about the one person, I guess having an effect on a movie leads back a little bit into this discussion about directors in general. Because yes. there's sort of the whole film theory aspect of like auteur and having the director sort of be the person who's in charge of a ton of creative decisions. Um, and a lot of the time they get all the praise um, or all of the blame. Right. So like you have something like M. Night Shyamalan makes a bad movie and he's the only one who gets blamed for it being bad. Right. But like there's a whole ton of people working on that. And the same goes for movies that get a ton of critical acclaim. How like how much do you buy into sort of the like the director is the the main person in charge of everything? So what I like to emphasize with our sort of dynamic is that granted we're a three-person crew and so that's it's a little nuts within itself and uh everyone is their own makeup and costume designer Mm -hmm. leah is our uh, director of photography and she's absolutely terrific always has great ideas and just the way that she goes about doing things and super technically accurate Mm -hmm. i trust you both so much that i i consider us to be a trifecta you know, like a like a triumvirate, I think is what I said, and that I think that term comes from uh, Roman times. I don't exactly remember. I'm not a historian. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's to do with sort of like the Roman Senate. Word. <laughs> and so, like, I know that not every single one of my ideas is going to be a hundred percent solid, and so I like having the freedom and the opportunity to bounce my ideas off of the both of you because you both genuinely have good ideas yourself. And I know that I'm taking care of like more aesthetic aspects, but you wrote the majority of the script, you know, and Leah did the storyboard for it. And so this is, I, it definitely feels a lot more communal because I don't know every single thing about this. Neither do you and neither does Leah, Mm -hmm. but the way that we all contribute it is like in a perfect, perfect storm Yeah, with everyone always bringing their A game super professionally and also dramatically. You know, it's just like, man, it's, it's the perfect, it's like finding the last piece to the puzzle, you know? Yeah, I do see, so the murder mystery production, I almost wonder if it's a microcosm of how actual Hollywood or different studio, um, sets really work and if it is as communal of an experience as it really is but I don't know because I've sort of never worked or had experience with the real uh, way that this type of industry of filmmaking works I don't know if it's actually as collaborative on on a real set besides sort of like what an actor brings to a performance versus what the writer has written and what the the director is sort of behind the scenes putting all the pieces into place I'd like to think that it's as universal of an experience, but um, I, I I have no idea in real life. So um, I, I've been to a film festival where we had a budget um, and like we really needed to keep track of it and everybody had their own specific job and everything. And um, I went as an actor. And so that was a little, it, it was a little demanding at times and we had a time constraint and we had... Um, we had a budget to look for. So the situation was obviously a little bit more stressful because our our timeline is a little more free because everyone's schedules are all up in the air and nobody's getting paid to do this. Mm-hmm. For us, it's more like uh, we're having fun. We're doing this because it's, it's a good time and uh, we wanted to make something. And for a lot of people, it's their livelihood. And I, I think also us taking control of so many aspects personally 
and like giving a lot of creative control to to every single person on set like that's what makes it a little bit more fun however the moment that we have a writer a director a producer and a director of photography and etc cetera, etc cetera, that all have to, like it, one person per job it becomes all about the money mm, mm-hmm. it has the opportunity to to really be like a community thing however i think it's up to the style of the people who are in charge yeah and a lot of the times people can pull rank by just like having that sort of like people can't have ego you know you see people like videos of people freaking out on set you know being a a total freaking diva Mm -hmm. and like people being like don't look at me man don't look at my eyes because if if i see that you're looking at me you're fired okay like (laughs) (laughs) like I can't imagine going to work one day and then being like, I looked Cameron Diaz in the eyes and she fired me. <laughs> and, and like, she's not the one that signs your checks, man. But if she has the power. <laughs> I, I don't know if Cameron Diaz is like horrible like that in real life. I just threw out a random, random actress's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's do Hulk Hogan. There you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hulk Hogan shoved me today. I flew through a wall. I flew through a wall. Now I'm fired. <laughs> Going back a little bit to what you were saying about style, I think that's what so often draws people into the belief of auteur and like the director being in charge of everything. Because unlike Edgar Wright, who you sort of admire for having all the different types of movies that he works on, a lot of directors work within their own genre or their own particular set of things that you would expect from a certain movie so like if you're going to see a tim burton movie there is definitely a feel that you're you're highly anticipating oh absolutely and a lot of people really love that i am not the biggest tim burton fan but i can for sure identify his style and when it works and when it doesn't absolutely i i think um the perfect like foil to tim burton is wes anderson Oh my gosh, that's my like basic person answer for who's your favorite director. It's uh, Wes Anderson because I've never had a bad experience watching one of his films. <laughs> I feel like his movies are so quirky, and I absolutely love his weirdness and symmetrical symmetricality. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 satisfying to watch his movies. It's like um, I off the top of my head, I can't think of something that's satisfying, but it's like oh, like like scissors through wallpaper oh yeah yeah or like like uh wrapping paper is what i meant to say (laughs) yeah sort of those like i don't know oddly satisfying compilations on youtube right there's a whole market for that (laughs) exactly and and that's how i feel watching a, a wes anderson movie like i i feel like if i'm watching a director i am watching something that is like curated by them they they are collecting they have a collection of experience and an amalgamation of people put into a few hours giving you an extraordinary scenario or even a scenario that's not extraordinary at all. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, sometimes it's about the people, sometimes it's about the story and it just matters about the direction that it's taking. And it's not always on, on the director's, it's not always the director's uh, job to do that sort of thing. Cause you have a lot of successful directors that are like, uh, give me some of this, you know, play with it. And then you got another director who's all like, no, you need to do it exactly as the script says. I need, oh, I don't remember this guy's name. I got to look it up. It's the guy who did um, Pretty Women, or Pretty Woman. And the way that he directs is so crazy to me. Because it's very, Gary Marshall, Marshall. he's pretty much the exact opposite of stick to the script. He's like, play around with literally everything. Like, we're we're going to shoot something, the script is a suggestion. See, see, like, I think there's a time and a place for that sort of thing, though. And it's a yin and yang that you need to be able to control. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of, I like to give people the freedom to kind of play with the script a little bit. However, if we're going for something specific, I'm like, okay, I'm going to need you to do this. And it's like Baby Driver, for example, the music came first and then they filmed according to that. Mm-hmm. They also did editing like on set while they were filming, which is pretty neat, but you know, that's not relevant. <laughs> yeah, I'm always sort of fascinated by some of the things that directors will bring on set that typically get left for post-production because there's, I mean, speaking out of musicality, there's the stories of like James Gunn on Guardians of the Galaxy actually playing the soundtrack right. uh, for the actors to hear as they're going, not through the motions, but through the scenes that they're recording. Right. And a lot of that, it's like bringing together different sides of a production 
um, into one sort of place and making it more of a community. You know what? I, I'm starting to think about it. Like if I were to give myself like three directors in which my style is directly inspired from, it's definitely Edgar Wright, James Gunn, and Martin Scorsese. hundred percent. Because I've already told you I don't want to be a Tarantino. Yeah. He's just cr- creepy and weird. <laughs> Like, listen, a real creative guy, but he's always like, okay, fellas, I'm going to need you to take off your shoes now mm-hmm. and remove the socks. Make sure to remove the socks, please. <laughs> like, man, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going off on a tangent because I just recently watched um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And mm-hmm. So many just dirty feet just all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen compilations, definitely. No! <laughs> No. Of just super cuts of Tarantino's foot fetish. That is so funny. <laughs> and he's definitely sort of the example of like uh, the modern filmmaker's filmmaker. The same way I think Scorsese also falls into the category of like, these are the directors that people who are aspiring to be in industry really look up to rather than sort of other people who like are still making popular media, but it's deemed as like just popular. Absolutely. I don't know if I'm articulating that correctly. No, you're you're a hundred percent you got it. Because they they are the filmmaker icons of like the seventies, eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. You know, Tarantino's mostly the nineties and if you wanna see like you know how I always talk about that Thor and Cars One have the exact same plot? Yes. If you, I, I once saw a YouTube video that pointed this out where it says that Goodfellas and Boogie Nights have the exact same plot. Hmm. And so Boogie Nights is about a, a porn star and um, or an aspiring porn star uh, played by Mark Wahlberg. And then uh, Goodfellas is about an aspiring gangster played by Ray Liotta. And they burn themselves eventually and then it just all goes to hell. Hmm. And mm-hmm. like, it, it is, it, it was such, it, it was such an eye-opener, like how, how many stories are... I wouldn't say reused, but repolished in a different style. Right. Or different varnish, I guess I should say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like the the whiplash and black swan effect. Yes, absolutely. And I, I would love to do an obsessed artist, like in that same vein, but for a film thing. Mm, mm-hmm. But I think now that I've said it and it's going to be on the internet, somebody's going to take that idea. So it's already scrapped. Oh, no. <laughs> But if somebody does end up making it, please send it to me so I can challenge you to make it better. Oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> That's what we, we're supposed to do with art, you know, challenge each other and provoke each other to do amazing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a little bit on, we were talking about sort of like the filmmakers, other filmmakers look up to. Yes. I know that the, the you talked about the, the icons of the 70s. And I remember hearing something about sort of 70s directors and the movies that were coming out then, how it wasn't until about the 60s and 70s that films started to be made by people who studied film. Because before that, it was sort of like you got into the industry after doing something else. Maybe you were transitioning from theater or um, you were... doing something else or coming in from sound design or something but around this time frame uh post mid-century you got directors who went to school to direct and you started getting this caliber of movie that were a little bit more i know that like i think scorsese and then george lucas and a few other people were in this category um and then nowadays the movies that we're watching now are all clearly inspired by their films and so you get sort of the cyclical cycle of filmmakers who study filmmakers who study filmmakers you're absolutely right when you have have there is a cycle of filmmakers studying filmmakers studying filmmakers you know and uh, tarantino is heavily inspired by the the movies of like the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and you're right there there was a lot of people uh, going to school for film, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Sergio Leone. That sounds right. Was uh, one of those people as well, and he was like a like a pioneer of the spaghetti westerns. You know, mm-hmm. all those movies were. <laughs> well, there's a lot of problematic aspects to those movies now, but um, they were considered to be classics, and just the way that people carried themselves, it definitely inspired uh, the way that. Uh, film moves forward Mm -hmm. and so you can kind of compare the filmmakers uh, studying filmmakers who went to school you know to um like theater actors who are classically trained versus the actors who are not yeah that's true 
I think you see that a lot in um, comedy where you'll get a, a cast who's mixed between trained theater actors and then also people who came up through the stand-up and improv circuits. Right. And and those it all, oh man, all art kind of intertwines in some sort of way because mm-hmm. all rappers are just poets and <laughs> just <laughs> twisting things around. And you even hear some of the rap right now and there's like some rappers uh, who... I'm not really familiar with with the mainstream rap community. I guess they have this sort of like like voice about them, where they're kind of like it's in the same vein of Blink One Eighty Two, uh, where he goes like, "Where are you?" <laughs> <laughs> Just like that that style of singing can is like being incorporated into a, like the rap style, and it's like. It, it's a little uh, melancholy as well. Hmm. There's like sadder rap that's coming out nowadays. And it's like they also incorporate rock elements, uh, like using a guitar. And honestly, it's really great to hear. I, I guess I'm connecting this to like multicultural, you know, multicultural education and shit. Right. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I digress. Uh, it's just, it's an amazing thing to see how all art is kind of connecting a little bit. And I think movies are a perfect example um, of that sort of thing because you can definitely create an experience using I, I forget who said it but it's mise-en-scene mm, yeah you know what's in the frame and what's out of the frame and that ap- applies for everything that you can sense within a film whether it's audio or visual yeah well and then also like mise-en-scene started as a theater term right too. so many like aspects of film language started as theater techniques and then became sort of standards of the movie industry right and, and, and this circles back to to people studying the film in schools and stuff because they end up coming out of there creating these technically like perfect films you know in terms of well yeah the technically perfect films they're made exactly how you're supposed to make a film but anything other than that is strictly them yeah but then on the other side you also get sort of people who come from the music industry uh making music videos and yeah or commercials a lot of the times those are people who do have film degrees but a lot of the time they aren't um they they didn't necessarily go to like the top film schools and this is sort of a different way to enter the industry oh absolutely i think commercials and music videos are the two like really big examples of like and then they got into television or tv what is also so difficult about like trying to obtain some sort of credibility in the arts world is that it's all about connections and opportunity. Oh my gosh, yeah. Like, like if you have zero connections, hell, you better be a lucky son of a bitch. Because <laughs> <laughs> people just don't randomly make it. Sure, they do, but that's just right place, right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the times, people won't get anywhere if they don't put themselves out there, which also ties back to the whole, uh, like, internet being oversaturated and stuff. Mm, yeah. Speaking of, like, right place, right time, I read a lot of, like, comedian memoirs. I think that's one of my favorite genres of book. And there is just an underlying imposter syndrome in the way that all of these people write, where they're just like, I was in the right place, right time. Like, I don't deserve all of this fame. I, I You can see where they got their big breaks. I think um, Jane Lynch's autobiography is actually titled Happy Accidents Aww. because of all the little instances where she's like, I was here and this is where I got my first big break. And the second one, I was just in the right place. Yeah. Like, I. <laughs> well, what do you mean when you say imposter syndrome? Oh, just uh, I, the imposter syndrome is the idea of like a feeling of inadequacy. Like you've earned sort of this acclaim, but you don't feel like you deserve it. A lot of people seem to have this idea resonate with them. They don't outright say it in sort of these types of books, but I think you can sense it in the way they treat their own notoriety. You know, if I may, um, then tell me if I'm overstepping a little bit, but would you say that you yourself kind of relate to this and kind of, uh, like, does that resonate with you, that whole idea of, like, undeserved claim? I mean, maybe. I feel like I don't have the acclaim to call it undeserved yet, which, I don't know, could just be a confounding of the same idea, that I'm not even willing to claim the acclaim. <laughs> but uh, I, I could potentially see myself, if I ever get did get to a place where people were studying me, like people study filmmakers, I would mm. totally feel like I didn't deserve that. Uh, and that could, I mean, it could frankly be part of the reason why I feel so attracted to these types of books, because I read 
pretty much every one I can find at the library. I think I'm right on my bed right now is Patton Oswald's uh, <laughs> autobiography. And I just like finished Anna Kendrick's uh, last week. Wicked. Oh, and I just finished Steve Martin's the week before that. Steve Martin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he told one of the funniest offensive jokes I've ever heard. And it, it was about a cat. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Whatever. I'm. I'm not going to repeat it. But um, it, <laughs> this honestly, is a school podcast. Yeah. That. That is a funny dude. Honestly. <laughs> well. Anyways. Um. Michael Scott is a big uh, Steve Martin fan. So. <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah. 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 How do you feel about The Office? I'm not the biggest fan of The Office, but I think you could see a lot of some of the stuff that we've been talking about in there. Uh, this sort of very distinct style, the way that it uh, is a mockumentary, and then all these other shows not copying it, but taking inspiration from that. So, um, well, two things I got to say. So first, all, first off, I want to say, like, Lauren, you're incredibly talented, and you're incredibly, you are super hard on yourself. You can't see it. I am rolling my eyes. <laughs> I know you're rolling your eyes right now, because you absolutely loathe compliments. You're all like, ew, no, don't compliment me. <laughs> You know, uh, I want to die right now. And then people are like, Lauren, (laughs) they're like, Lauren, you're amazing. You're like, no, I'm garbage. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that being said, I will say that uh, my girlfriend is the biggest Office fan ever. Mm, mm -hmm. And uh, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty decent fan um, by the transitive property, I guess. But I also pay attention to, like, who's in charge of directing the episodes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because I know that, like, Greg Daniels and Mike Sher, they intersect in so many different ways. Because, mm-hmm. like, I, I believe Greg Daniels worked on um, King of the Hill with Mike Judge. Yeah, he did King of the Hill uh, before that, yeah. Right. And, and eventually Mike Judge went on to do Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, we and then you have uh, Greg Daniels going with Mike Schur, and then they're also developing things like The Good Place and um, Parks and Recreation and Superstore. Well, Superstore is actually created by Justin Spitzer, who was one of the writers on The Office. Yep. One of the things I, I greatly appreciate, if you really were trying to look at a perfect example of a community that genuinely loved each other and were all great friends and everything, The Office is the way to go. That's true, yeah. They they all were super like close knit and everything, and a lot of their reactions are a hundred percent genuine because they do let their actors have the freedom to like to roam and like really feel themselves as characters and develop their own characters and their own nuances and their own props and Yeah, you know, I mean and, you can really look at the way that a lot of the characters are just named after the actors that played them. They had outlines for the way that they wanted the characters to interact and behave, but a lot of that comes from who was working on the project. Absolutely. I think like a good example uh, was like Phyllis Smith, who plays, I don't know her actual last name on the show, but Phyllis. Phyllis Vance. Yes, <laughs> Vance from Vance Refrigeration. Refrigeration. <laughs> um, but like she was, work- she was working in the casting department at the time, and they just liked how much she did the line reads for other people um, who were acting alongside the character of Phyllis, that they just asked her to play it. That is amazing. Led to this sort of career in acting. And then she went on to do like Sadness and Inside Out. I loved her as Sadness and Inside Out. <laughs> Inside Out is one of my favorite movies. It, it is. It, it is the. Uh, it's what I use in my classes or in my uh, education courses to talk about um, interdisciplinary learning, as in like mm, the, the mm-hmm. blending of emotions in a memory, the blending of disciplinaries in like a learning a subject. Mm-hmm. And because I just, it, there's a lot of intersectionality that comes with the subjects and being a well-rounded individual means you have to be able to look at everything critically as they're interpreted, not only by you, but as whoever's like delivering the information to you. Yeah. Anyways, um, I, I hate it when people talk about the last few seasons after Michael leaves because it is a completely different show. Yes. But it's a completely different show for some pretty, re- some reasons that you probably wouldn't expect. Because, like, Gabe, uh, after watching Silicon Valley, uh, Gabe, to me, played by Zach Woods, is hilarious. Like, I couldn't get enough of him, mm-hmm. you know, because he was just so despicable. Just, <laughs> uh, 
And then you had you had James Spader, who was terrific as Ultron, right? And is the main reason that I think Ultron was absolutely wasted. If you watch the What If series, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I definitely did. <laughs> they don't have James Spader back though; they just have someone doing an impeccable impersonation. They have um, you know, Ross Marquand, who is from The Walking Dead. Um, ah. He plays um, Aaron, I believe. And uh, he is amazing with uh, with impressions of people. Mm-hmm. He also plays the Red Skull in Infinity War. Yes. Uh, when they go to Morag. Yeah, he is a terrific... He does voice impressions of Tom Hiddleston, I think Owen Wilson. Is it um, Morag or Voromir? No, it, Voromir. Morag is where the Power Stone is. Voromir, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Voromir is where the, the Soul Stone is. We're Sorry, also not to interrupt big... you or anything. <laughs> <laughs> We're also big Marvel fans. I, I am like... I, I used to uh, Spider Man has was my favorite when I was a kid, and before Spider Man got into the movies, it was Ant Man because of the amazing soundtrack, mm-hmm. and it was a well done heist movie that Edgar Wright had a hand in making. Nice, but he was booted from the project for creative control. Yeah, I think. Oh, what is that guy's name? Peyton Peyton Reed ended up directing Ant Man. Um, yes, and then he does an episode of The Mandalorian too. Um, I think The Mandalorian. And just television in general, the way that you have a lot of directors working on the same project, but it still feels cohesive, is one of the reasons I also like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because you get all of these directors and their different visions. And it doesn't entirely work as a series that well, but it works as an expanded universe, because you get all of these styles blending beautifully together. You know what? You know what? I'm starting to think maybe I shouldn't even like try to go after directors like Tarantino or Scorsese. Maybe I should go after more like the Russo brothers mm. and Taika Waititi and Oh my gosh, I love Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi's phenomenal. I saw the Wilder People, Hunt for the Wilder People, and it changed my life. You know? <laughs> Every now and then in my head I'm gonna I'm I'm like like Ricky Baker. Ah, Ricky Baker. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the birthday song from the very beginning. I do not. I have not seen it yet. What? What do you mean? You have? Oh man, that movie's a masterpiece. You got to watch it. It's got the jabroni from Jurassic Park oh. and um, the kid from Deadpool too. Okay. I, I don't remember what their names are, but they are terrific. I know who you're talking about. I just yeah, I don't remember his name either. <laughs> but um. Yeah, like I, I'm starting to think maybe I should look more at, at at directors like that with the way that they go about doing things. Like John Favreau, mm-hmm. his whole idea for The Mandalorian is like to paint it out to be like a cowboy in space, right? And I love that whole aesthetic because uh, first off, I love the cowboys because well, not the not the football team fellas. <laughs> <laughs> like Red Dead Redemption Two is my favorite video game right now, and it because it's so detailed. And there's, like, something awesome about just being kind of, like, I guess you could say on the road like that, just being a gunslinger. Mm -hmm. Like, I've always really liked that aesthetic. I like it when it shows a lot of realism and all that. And so I think what The Mandalorian brings is, like, you've got this dude who's obviously better than everyone else at everything all the time. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) and then he's just kind of, like, fighting everything, just, like shrugging it off basically but then the moment you've got this thing you've got to take care of you're like oh man it shows that real vulnerability and being like the tough guy yeah absolutely i don't know if you um have you seen the behind the scenes i think it's like star wars gallery uh the behind the scenes like making of the mandalorian i think i've seen a handful of them i highly recommend the director's episode Mm. i think that's i think that one and the visual effects episode are two of the best the the director's one goes into like sort of the creation of the the ideas for the series and the way different voices come in and blend throughout the thing. And then the visual effects one is just about the incredible technology that went into creating this world. Um, I don't know. I, I recommend it to literally everyone who likes Star Wars. Oh, I, I, I love that, honestly. And as a as a visual effects enthusiast, it's like like I want to talk about um, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982 mm-hmm. because I absolutely love like animatronics and stuff when they're used correctly. <laughs> right. However, the reboot, I was so disappointed by it because it was completely 100% CGI. 
And then when you're trying to get those like light frames, trying to level out the lighting of the room and like making sure it looks totally correct versus getting just an animatronic that actually has shadows. I feel like it was, it was like, it's, it's like you're trying to walk around the pool and you fall into the water, you know? <laughs> you're the second person I've heard complain about the remake of the thing in the last two days. Oh man. I, I think I, I was talking to you about it actually. <laughs> Uh, are are you sure there's somebody else I need to be Yeah, it was person. in my uh it was in my film class cuz we were cuz I'm in an animation class. And so we were talking about uh the history of like CGI and bad effects and stuff. Well, there we go. <laughs> so one thing that we haven't really talked about is that a lot of the names that we've been dropping throughout this uh episode have mostly been male directors or male fil- filmmakers. Um, even in the franchises that do have female direction, like we didn't mention Bryce Dallas Howard. Oh, I love Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, I know. I love her episodes and also just, I like her acting as well. Also, she's a fantastic actress as well Mm -hmm. as being a terrific director. Absolutely. One of the films that nobody ever talks about is, um, Angelina Jolie's Unbreakable. I think it's called Unbreakable. I'm not sure. Hmm. It, It takes place, I think, during the Olympics in Nazi Germany. Oh. I think. It follows a soldier. He was in the Olympics for like track and field. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely not doing the story justice. Like we, we got to do some more research into it. But I, I remember watching it. Uh, I think I was still in Japan when I watched it. And it was absolutely, it, it was terrific because they uh, got captured on, I think, in a Japanese camp. Mm-hmm. He was singled out because people recognized him from the Olympics. Oh. So they were like, okay, then you run for us. Hmm. You're going to race me or I'm going to shoot you. It's, you know, your choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm oversimplifying it, like, way too much. But the film is phenomenal. It really shows the uh, the emotional the gravity of the situation that goes through there. And it's a perfect example of perseverance, you know, especially in the face of danger. So many good recommendations. <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason I, I thought about Molly's Game, oh, which is such a crazy movie. I love that movie so much. I have the book right next to me right now. It's on my bookshelf. Oh, nice. I, I used to um, get Bryce Dallas Howard and... Um, I still get Bryce Dallas Howard and Jessica Chastain mixed Jessica up. Jessica Chastain. That, yes, <laughs> I, I I still get them mixed up sometimes. So immediately I thought of Molly's Game and I was like, wait a minute, that's not her. <laughs> yeah, although, I mean, not a female director, but that is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. And then he did... um. Uh, uh, what's the name of the Netflix movie? Uh, the Chicago Seven, Trial of Chicago Seven. Mm. That was his second directed movie, and he's obviously written so many uh movies and plays. You know what that that movie that that name sounds very familiar. So Aaron Sorkin, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, he wrote like um a few Good Men, oh. and he wrote like The West Wing, uh, The Social Network. Whoa. He's a big Hollywood writer. Okay. <laughs> and then he's done these two movies. He wrote and directed both Molly's Game and uh, Trial of Chicago 7. Wow, that's amazing. And he's barely getting into directing? Yeah, yeah. He he has a long, long history of writing. And yeah, he's just now sort of getting into the directing. That is so crazy. Yeah, Molly's Game has my favorite intro to any movie. Like the first, I think it's like five minutes, are so good. And they're also kind of irrelevant to the plot, but they're so great. I mean, it's when she's like uh, skiing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's when she has the accident when she's skiing. Yeah, that that was intense. Yeah, and it like instantly hooks you in. And like, even though it doesn't have anything to do with uh, the underground world of poker, which is what the rest of the movie is about for those who haven't seen it. It's setting up her, her internal conflict, that, emotion, yeah. that, um, that emotional gravity. Yes. Yeah, it's all about sort of the inner conflict, her determination. It gives you who she is, the way that she just gets back up and perseveres. Um, but then also she does that to a fault. Yes, she she's definitely a person who gets herself in like a self-destructive cycle as well as like getting herself involved with some pretty bad people who aren't open to the option of no. Yeah, you know, like the Russian mob. Yeah, <laughs> or Tobey Maguire. <laughs> <laughs> Not to connect it back to Spider-Man or anything. <laughs> no, we're not connecting this back to Spider-Man, just the actor. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. everybody at this point knows who Player X is. <laughs> pretty much. I want to. I'm pretty sure in the book he's just Toby. Like I don't even think they say. 
uh, Player X, which I wonder if that was a studio note. Because in the book, I'm pretty sure she just says it's Tobey Maguire. And like Leonardo DiCaprio, she also just says the name in the book. Um, but then none of these players are actually named in the movie and they're all played by different people, obviously. Oh, yeah. So I wonder if it was sort of a studio interference. That, like, you can't actually say this in a movie because that's the medium that these people work in. Yeah. But it's like, like maybe the stuff that he didn't do was illegal, but it was unethical. Mm-hmm. 100%. Just immoral. When I heard that it was Tobey Maguire, I was like, no way. No. <laughs> Spider-Man? Nah. Like, <laughs> He's not going to make someone bark like a seal for 10 bucks. Like, Michael Sarah, what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah, I can be Spider Man. <laughs> Although, speaking of uh, fee or Michael Sarah again, uh, and then sort of like female filmmakers, uh, I just watched Juno recently. Um, Ooh, I think it was last year, and which I don't think actually I think that has a connection back to the office in terms of directors, but it's written by Diablo Cody, who is a woman. And I believe she's from Washington, but I might be wrong about that. I I guess I could see that with the overall aesthetic of Juno. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's definitely a movie with the way it's written, like a very distinct style. I think Alison Jones might've done the casting for it. Uh, oh, yeah, was, and then she's the person who cast The Office as well, which makes yeah. sense why, like, Rain Wilson's in the film. Yeah, and then you also get her working with people like Matt Lacerra, so it, it's so crazy to see that people's, um, the movies that they're involved in are, like, timestamps of their life, because mm-hmm. it's like, if you didn't do this project, then you probably wouldn't have done the other ones after that. Right. Because it's all about the time and place, and in, and, and, like, when you think about Michael Cera, he he did Juno, and then Arrested Development, and then Scott Pilgrim continued to do Arrested Development. Uh, Molly's Game. Mm-hmm. This is the end. Probably in actually probably switch those two in terms of like chronological order. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it, it's like like you can really track down somebody's life based off of all the things that they've done or been working on and everything, and you can see how they mature as an artist as well. Yeah, you might call them a series of happy accidents. Word. Way to bring it back. <laughs> Tying it all together. <laughs> See, it all connects. <laughs> wow, this has been a lot of fun. All right, but that does feel like a natural ending point. Oh, yeah? I'm going to read a little bit of my um, my outro script, which uh, I guess anyone who listens to the podcast knows that I sometimes get through. All right. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please consider following Major Motion Pictures Podcast wherever you're listening to us right now, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor. You can also check out the Digital Media Center on YouTube and Instagram at www underscore DMC. The DMC Murder Mystery also has an Instagram you can follow for behind-the-scenes photos and extra content leading up to the series release, which you can check out at Quiet On Set, WWU. And before you go, I'd like to once again thank Eddie for being here with me today virtually. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It has been so much fun. Absolutely. All right, and I'd like to thank anyone listening for supporting the DMC and its content. But until next week, thanks for listening. (laughs)